This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hello, I'm Marissa. We're going to talk about Ubik, the 1969 novel by Philip K. Dick. Um, this is, uh, I believe, the most popular after, I think it's the third most popular. After, I guess, the first one is Men in the High Castle. Second uh-huh. one is Do Androids Dream? And Ubik is the third most highly rated, most loved of Philip K. Dick's novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I swear I'd read it before, but I don't think I had. Ooh. But it, it totally feels like I've read it before because there's not much new in here. <laughs> it seems like it's just a whole bunch of other stuff that I've read by him that's completely the same with a few different character names and a lot more costumes. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot more costumes. There's a lot of costumes in here. And a yeah. lot of familiar things put in Very familiar. Order. <laughs> um and uh, I would say that it's a pretty good book, but I don't rank it third. I, uh, not, not, I would say mm. it's maybe uh, it's in the top half of the bottom half. What about you, Paul? I, I, I'd rate it higher than that because, yes, this is for the dick connoisseurs such as us who have been going through all of uh, Phil K. Dick's Ovoir, and listeners, if you haven't listened to our other episodes, you can search for them on the SSF Audio website, and you can hear that we've done a ton of Philip K. Dick over the last year and change, so a lot a lot of the stuff in here isn't precisely whiz-bang new. What Where this book fits for me is, this book is maybe the very end of the of the, how can I put this, um, Gently, the most lucid stage of Philip K. Dick's writing before <laughs> things start going really weird in the 70s. And mm-hmm. you really have to wonder what the heck is going on. This is, this is, I mean, things are starting to slide here, but the, this, this novel distills all the stuff from the 50s and 60s we've seen from connaps to strange realities to mysterious forces to all all this all all the all those little bits that we see in all the other novels from and puts them together into a relatively coherent whole except for that final chapter which is like huh mm. Mm. Uh, I want to um, before you go there I just want to say there there are done 40 episodes uh, you guys have not been on all of them but most of them so that's uh, that's a big chunk of philokinetic books and yeah. there's some short stories and novelettes and stuff in there, but that's mostly novels, I think. I mean, yeah, yeah. Not to toot our own horn, but this podcast has been really good for me reading and rereading Philip K. Dick. So thank you, Jesse. Well, thank you. I, thank you, Jesse. You're welcome. Um, um, I was waiting for one of you guys to break into a Ubik ad while we were like. <laughs> <laughs> this whole thing's a Ubik ad. Um, yeah. Marissa, you were gonna place it in in the in its context. Yeah, I'm going to place it, um, for me, I think it's like probably second or third best mm. book. I put it way up there. I I read it, it's probably one of the first books I read. I can't remember if it was the first or second Philip K. Dick book I read. Um, that might have a lot then, to do with it, you know, like. Yeah, uh, I think it does. Because I read Galactic Pot Healer and like, 
what the hell? This is the most amazing, hilarious book. Nobody likes it. And it's it's got a lot of elements that are similar. Um, yeah. And I think it, I had this that is not a bad put. This is very well put together too, which is uh, not it is. always it's strangely case. put together for yeah. a Philip K. Dick book. Yeah, so I had that experience of like going into it blind and just loving this crazy guy's writing and not really understanding what it was all about. And then getting to read it again now, I had a totally different appreciation for it and I saw how it all kind of fit together and linked to his other books. And so, yeah, it was, I think it's one of my favorites. Uh, did you see I sent you a on Twitter, I think late last night? I should, probably should have sent the whole thing, but got a new computer and everything's not up to speed yet. Um, a novelette from 1964 called What the Dead Men Say? No. Okay. What's that? Well, you'll want to see it because it's got Virgil Finlay illustrations and it is uh, kind of a. Um, another place where he's recycling material from so this is uh this novel contains apparently one page of that of that Mm. um novelette uh i didn't dig into which page it was but um just going over the the text a little bit briefly i saw that it 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 had some crossover although it was a crossover more in in names and concepts than it was in plot and detail so there's no joke in it, as far as i could see um and it's oh, not wow wow these these illustrations are amazing passport to 25th century with this almost like a little maze like look of all the three women's hair wow yeah and the last image of the frightening looking woman um <laughs> seems like it's going in a different direction than this because this does have uh, a lot less uh Angry wives, I would say. <laughs> it's, it's 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 got a it's got a strange relationship with a quote unquote wife. She sure. isn't. She is. Then she of isn't. Wives that are like that, but um, Which neither I of think them is are how, negative. Yeah, and that could be a little bit of Philip K. Dick's relationship to these women as well. Like <laughs> this kind of like become my wife. No, don't be my wife. Now you're my mistress. Now you're my wife. Now you're just a girl. We slept like, <laughs> together, therefore we're married. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, notice, I mean, let, why don't we start there? It, that scene where uh, some guy comes by with a girlfriend for the the main character, that we've seen before, right? That's in, uh, in you know, the apartment. I mean, it's to me, it's the same apartment building. Um, remember, <laughs> there was the the slug man or uh, the clam man, Lord Running Clam. Oh, yeah. 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 And he says, you're depressed. You need a girlfriend. I'll go get you one. <laughs> so, so Lord Running Clan becomes Gigi Ashwood. That's right. Gigi Ashwood, because- who is another uh, sort of aspect of Philip K. Dick, I think. He was very Philip K. Dick-like. He's Philip yeah, he- K. Dick on, on coffee and cigarettes and speed, uh, whereas mm-hmm. the Joe Chip, is he's coming off of, of cigarettes, coffee, and speed. And, yeah, because oh, Gigi Ashwood's well. like, is that is that go getter? He wants to get things done. He wants the he wants the credit for things, and he's eager for Joe to. He's ex- he's the excited add, guy, right? Rather yeah, than to, the, to, to, to like, you could, you, I mean, I mean, it's like he's he's excited for her for him to test her because you know because he's going to get a nice big fat commission out of out of this whole thing. So yeah, whereas Joe Chip is much more of a sad sack. A sad sack dick protagonist. Yeah, he's much more. He's he's quite a bit like um, 
the main character in Galactic Pod Healer, right? Who he he, he, can't, he hasn't got work, he can't afford to pay his bills. He's he's sitting in his office waiting for somebody to come and help him out, right? And in fact, there's so many connections to uh, to that novel, to um, Galactic Pod Healer. Um, so uh, who is the Glimmung in this book is maybe unclear, but the way the Glimmung communicates is identical to in, with, in with, with yeah with strange oh, yeah. Yes, strange messages on packages and, yep. and, and notes that yeah. So so the glim the Glimmung in this book the Glimmung is using Ubik as his way of changing Ubik, yeah, reality. Yeah, Ubik is the Glimmung in a certain sense, right? Yeah. But yeah. But is is Ubik a thing or is it a tool? Uh, well, what, okay. I, I, mean, I mean, it's presented as a as a tool and as a MacGuffin for a bunch of this book, where Joe's trying to get some Ubik to use to try to stabilize himself, and the the force the the for, the force raised uh, kind of against him from the uh, from the popsicle is trying to keep him from having it. Um, but I will just uh, point out: Is Ubik a, a person, or is it just stuff? Here's a here's a random line. I just typed in the words "I am." Okay, so mm-hmm. that's that's one of the th- the first one that comes up that is relevant is "I am." I have always been. I always will be. Miss Spanish's voice rang with conviction. May I tell you what voice is revealed to me? So that's actually God talking from the Bible. I am, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I am who I am, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, it comes up again, I'm sure. Let's just see. This is an unnatural place, halfway between the world and death. I am. <laughs> Head of Rensiter Associates now. Okay, next one. Uh, ah, here we go. This is from, again, one of those bathroom revelations, right? That's where most of the really profound revelations happen in... Uh, Galactic Pot Healer. Yes, that's they're right. always in the bathroom, right? Where he walks in there and he looks in the mirror and sort of rubs his face, looking at himself, and then has some ex- spiritual experience of God. Um, and then, so they're in the bathroom. It says, "Lean over the bowl and then take a dive. All of you are dead. I am alive. <laughs> right? I am alive." And then there's another one that's exact same, except a slightly different twist. Jump right in, put your head in the urinal, spin upside down, whatever, however it goes. Um, let's see if I'm trying. Here we go. Chapter 17. I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the suns. I made the worlds. I created the lives and the places they inhabit. I moved them here. I put them there. They go as I say. They do as I tell them. I am the word. And word is not capitalized here, but if it was, then that'd be even obvious, more obvious that it's straight out yeah. of the Bible. And my name is never spoken. That's a big thing with Christians and Jews, right? Especially Jews, yeah, that, that the name of God is yeah, is not to be spoken. The name which no one knows. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I am. That's the just a full stop sentence. I shall always be. And but that's the penultimate I, chapter, right? Yeah. Or, okay, no, that so, is the ultimate chapter, actually. That is the ultimate chapter. Okay, so I want to talk about. I, now I'm going to jump off. There. I want to talk about those little uh, bond knots at the beginning of every chapter we get. Mm-hmm. Ubik in all sorts of different forms. The first chapter is 
Friends, this is cleanup time, and we're discounting all silent electric Ubics by this much money. Yes, we're <laughs> throwing away the blue book. And remember, every Ubic in our lot has been used only as directed, and that's a that's a phrase that comes up again and again. Mm-hmm. Um, second, second one is about beer, but then we go to um, number three. NC Ubic has all the flesh flavor of just brewed drip coffee your husband will say christ sally i used to think your coffee was only so-so but now wow <laughs> when tasted as directed when taken as direct i mean that that's like a like a a key phrase that keeps coming up again and again hmm, that you should be that. i know i know why i have no one reason why um remember joe joe chip is in his apartment the the gg ashwood's downstairs with the girl they're waiting at the you know the interphone or whatever, and he says, "I you can't come up right now. My apartment's a mess." But more importantly, I haven't had my coffee. And then he he looks around his apartment for coffee. And while he's looking around his apartment for coffee, he remembers a vague memory of going shopping the night before. And he's oh, I have it right here. He had a quasi memory of shopping last night at the Conapps apartment supermarket. Again, we've seen apartments like this where everything is sort of built in, right, to the apartment building. And mm-hmm. it, living in a condominium apartment is kind of like being in a communist state. Anyways, in particular, a memory of tearing out a green ration stamp, which could mean either coffee or tea or cigarettes or fancy imported snuff. What does all of those things have in common? They're all drugs, right? They're, they're, coffee yeah, and tea and cigarettes and snuff. These they're all stimulants. All st- uh, they are all stimulants, but they're all drugs. He and then later on, a minute, a minute or so goes by. Him looking around, he does find some coffee. Um, he expensive coffee that he they apparently wasted money on. Right, and imported from someplace. But uh, he yeah. he also talks about taking a soporific, right? So uh, this uh, throughout this novel, everybody's uh, has convenient access to drugs. Right, and drugs. Absolutely, but especially in this one, like I mean, some of them, you know, some novels, their drugs are almost not mentioned or not even thought of. This one is it, it's ubiquitous throughout the novel. Um, that word is kind of appropriate, but that is access to God, right? Um, in our higher moments, as in being high, um, people can have drug-like, well, drug-induced experiences of God, right? All the psychedelics and anti-psychedelics and, right, so one, of the, one of the theories that what Ubik is, is it's an anti-psychedelic. Um, and and thinking how Ubik is used in, in the latter half of the novel. An uh, anti-psychedelic? Yeah. Thinking hmm, how... And so sorry. Who's, so the instructions are coming from where, like to use it as directed well that see that phrase is going to be on every kind of drug that philo k dick is actually taking legally right mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, is almost everything thinking. he takes he i don't i think he almost never took anything that was illegal right the benzedrine that he's buying is is legit and it might yeah. not be right but it's legit right um and he's not drinking a lot of alcohol but so you think <clears throat> like while he's writing um his his novel is um, decaying and like regressing back to the real world around him. Well, I think that there's there's uh, another reading of that as well. So, but I do I like that line about it sort of being an anti psychedelic. When later yeah. on he's 
you know, the the world is sort of falling apart and regressing. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that he's always striving after is more drugs, right? More ubic. Um, mm. And it, at some, one point in the novel here, we've got a character who, a different character, um, I want to say it's the Runciter, who yeah. spends too much time uh, up, and so his solution is to take uh, another uh, bit of speed, right? Uh, amphetamine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll get him go. That'll keep him going for another 24 hours or something, right? Well, uh, my understanding of the way this stuff works is the longer you go without sleep, the more, um, the more delusion and paranoia and bizarre experience of reality it gets. And the only cure, other than you know going cold turkey and going to sleep, is to take more, right? And that right. Cl- mm-hmm. makes everything clear again. But it's a sort of a dangerous cycle that you know. That's that's why meth's so addictive, right? Is you is you started to run down and not feel so good, and then you take some more, and everything's great again, and you're like Gigi Ashwood, right? Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I want to go back to the whole anti psychedelic yes. thing. Well, that, I think I um, think I think that's exactly sort of what it is there. But yeah, go for it. Okay, so. Anti-psychedelics and seeing what things really are remind me of a certain favorite PKD story of mine, doesn't it? Remember Faith of Our Fathers? Yeah, yeah. Where 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 the, where the where the main character gets an anti-psychedelic gets the anti-psychedelic slip to him so he can see what this what the party chairman really looks exactly, like. Yeah. And then of course the, the the twist in that story, as listeners of that episode will remember, is that the party chairman looks different to different people. When you have an anti-psychedelic, what the heck does that mean? Which just is like blows blows my mind that there's different possible overlapping realities. So Ubik reifies reality. That's one now, now, one one way of approaching it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, there's one way approaching it. Now here now so there's a time frame of I'm going to dive dive right into one of the real questions is all of those novels are like. Who after the explosion on on the moon? Mm-hmm. Who is alive and who is dead? <laughs> that is a good question. And, and, and the novel isn't precisely clear. It just runs to only die and everybody else is alive. But then, why is reality decaying around them? And are they all in cold pack? And 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 they're being inserted and the, and all these uh, all these references to Ubik. But then. The one thing that makes me kind of confused and what a little consistent is, we get mentions of Ubik in those little note things before the explosion. So is the entire novel really mm-hmm. taken in a false world, or is the, 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 does the falsity start only at that break, which whatever happens happens? The facile it's, answer it's like, to all of these <laughs> questions is yes. I know that's the facile <laughs> answer. That's the facile answer. Um, I. I think that that's the sort of the central attraction of the of the novel and the the why it works so well is because he's he's always managing that question and never settling on one definitive thing. Um, apparently, he wrote a screenplay of this. Mm. Um, I have not read that, but that might <laughs> might require it be a little clearer. I don't know, but it's I don't think it should be clear because it's it's. He, what he's doing is incredibly skillfully done, so it's hard to say. What I want to point out about what th- that scene you just mentioned, where they all 
get exploded on the moon, or some of them get exploded on the moon, or maybe nobody get or whatever. That that's straight out of his first novel, uh, Solar Lottery. Mm-hmm. In fact, there is a artificial person on the moon <laughs> who uh, is trying to kill them, right? And that's straight out of the first novel, Solar Lottery. In fact, um, tons of stuff the- is out of Solar Lottery. Just think of how the way it starts. This novel is about a guy who works for a corporation, and he needs a an anti telepath there to help him do his job, right? And they hire onto this, and you have to have this contract, and blah blah blah. It sort of goes in a different direction there, but uh, and we're we're seeing it from a slightly different point of view. But the the twitching of the bottle that is so important in. in Solar Lottery is uh, not quite here, but this could be the same universe, just you know, a little earlier. Yeah, I felt those echoes. Th- this is the one with the whatever it was called, the Bevatron or something, yes. right? Like no, the, uh, yeah, no, no but that, that's Eye in the Sky. That's oh, also that's sky. totally I, that this book too, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Re- reality gang destroyed. There's an accident that the uh, with that group where stuff, everyone, yeah, right? Is, yeah, everyone's. Cl- Sliding through and 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 there's a like like this both novels have like that ten little Indian sort of plot where people get knocked off one by one. I will mm-hmm. read you the uh, the Wikipedia summary for Solar Lottery, 1955 science fiction novel, first published novel contains many themes present in later work, published as World of Chance in the UK. The main story is about about a man named Ted Bentley who lives in a strange world. The world is dominated by percentages and the lottery. The lotteries mm-hmm. choose the next leader uh, and a new assassin whose job it is to kill the leader or the quiz master. This makes the uh, that makes it the case that everybody in the society has the opportunity to be selected as leader or assassin. Bentley unexpectedly gets chosen to be part of the committee to assassinate the new quiz master and he must decide what he's going to do. So oh, yeah. and then the sort of the 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 cover of it is the thing that all I always think about when I think about this novel. So there's a guy in a spacesuit with a big rock over his head. He's going to throw down on some guy on the surface of the moon, and that guy is not wearing a spacesuit. Right? And that's because that guy, we find out in the novel, is not really a person. He's an artificial person who is basically a bomb. Mm-hmm. Which is also another, that's Imposter by Philip K. Dick, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that they go up to the Luna and it, it, it's it's a conspiracy and all that stuff, and then you've got the group, and then it's, it, you're absolutely right, switches right into um, the Bevatron novel, which is called what, Paul? Um, Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky, right. Where yeah. there's an explosion and everybody has takes turns looking at the reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what that year was. The Eye in the Sky was 1957, two years later. Yep. And uh, so- that, uh, th- that one felt extremely important <laughs> for the development of this novel. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I think so. But it, somehow it still is unique. Um, and th- there's another one too that I'm trying to remember the name of, um, and I really like that one. It's where there's a sm- uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Deus Ire. Um, oh I yes, that one. right. Yeah, we haven't done that one for this for for this for this podcast. Oh wait, podcast. you guys maybe have? I'm, yeah. No, maybe maybe I'm thinking the wrong one. Maybe oh no no no, no 
No, we did do a day of Sire because yeah, because that's the one he did with his Lasny and with yeah, and with the um. Yeah, we did do it. Yeah, we did do Paul it. Paul did it, the, but not uh, Marissa. With, with the with yeah. the pill, yeah, with the pillog across the blasted United States and. Right, um, but that's maybe that's not the one I'm thinking. But there's one where um, there's a town and there's a town next door and the the town re- is reconstructed. Um, and then he goes into an apartment or a house in the town, and on the uh, it says like drinking fountain, and there's like a sticker. Or it's a little post-it note that says drinking fountain, right? And then he finds another one on the ground and it says highway, right? Oh right, um, what novel is that? Uh, oh right, right. Oh, oh right, god, right. they're all merging into one. They right are here. totally. <laughs> Time out of joint. Time yeah, out yeah, of joint. Okay, that was like grape. the second Philip K. Dick novel I ever read after. After um, yeah, and we all Van did that High one. Castle. <laughs> it's like the second one I read. It, like, oh my god, that's, what the heck am I reading? That's from February that's 2015. True. Our show. Yeah, that has the little messages as well. Yeah, and yeah. So, so the really, it, it's surprising that this novel works, uh, given that it seems to be recycling all these things he's already really dealt very deeply with. However, um, somehow it still works for me. I don't yeah. I, I maybe maybe like if I had read this one first, maybe I'd like oh it's you can see it's all coming together. It's, it's perfect. Um, I don't know that this one is has a better ending than any of the other ones or anything like that, but it does seem to still work somehow. Yeah, I think this one works more than most of his books that I've read. Like it seems pretty. It seems to all kind of all the pieces fit together. In a pretty coherent way, and his writing is like unusually good in this one. I thought. Yeah, he's he's pretty consistent, and uh, uh, I don't feel it as much in the end, but the beginning is is almost all comedy. Um, yeah. And I really and I his, enjoy his humor. <laughs> yeah, and then his dark scenes, like the horror, the kind of horrific moments, are right. really beautifully written. Right. That's where he seems to be like. This week yeah. I tweeted you guys. Um, uh, there was a scene straight out of the Cookie Lady. Um, I said it was in the last chapter. It's actually in the second to last chapter. I'll see if I can bring that up. Um, and do you guys remember the Cookie Lady? I, I don't think we've done a show on it. I just I read it with my students, so I no, know I it backwards and forwards. Cookie Lady is about a little boy named Bubber, who uh, on his way home from school stops at uh, an old lady's house who bakes some cookies, and. Uh, she sucks the life out of him, um, mm. and he dies. And it's basically a re- retelling of Hansel and Gretel without Gretel. And Gretel uh, saves Hansel, and Hansel saves Gretel, and that's in the original Hansel and Gretel story. So there's no Gretel there to save uh, poor Hansel, in this case, Bubber. Um, and his parents are like, uh, you shouldn't go visit that lady um, because you have stuff to do, and she's weird or something like that. And then he goes one last time, and that last time, um, on his way home, he starts to find the wind too powerful, and he grabs onto a lamppost or something to try from being blown away. And then the final scene is him. Um, you know what? I'll just I'll just give you the uh, the ending from mm-hmm. it here. Um, Go for it, Cookie Lady. There it is. Uh, oh no, it's in Russian only. Okay, <laughs> sorry. So uh, the ending is basically um, the parents are wondering where their son is. The wind's coming up. 
Uh, they hear a sort of a scratching at the door. They go to the front door, open the door, and there's nothing there except for a bundle of rags and a tumbleweed. Yeah. And that is in the end of this book, the second to last. He he starts to feel that way. Um, let's see. Oops. Oh no, I've gone too far away from the sick my deck website. Somebody take over for me. <laughs> <laughs> what have oh. you lost? Which which scene were you um, looking um, for? I gotta t- I gotta find it in Ubik. It's in chapter sixteen. Okay, I have, t- I have chapter sixteen. And he says something to the uh, to the effect of. Um, this is chapter sixteen. He's talking with uh, Jory for the last time. Yeah, and he says, "I feel like." Um, I'm gonna blow away or rags. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. Oh, like where he starts to fade. Yes, he's fading. Rags. Uh, oh, here it is. An evening wind rustled at him, and he felt a tug at him, drawing him away with it. He seemed to be like some ragged bundle of webs and cloth, barely holding together. Together. Right. And that is obviously a, a real feeling that Philip K. Dick has had at one point, right? Or maybe yeah. has. I mean, some days, you know, you wake up and everything's great. Right? <laughs> you're you're full of energy. And then the, the next day or some other day, you're like, oh, yeah, everything feels heavy and, uh, you know, achy and things that don't normally you wouldn't normally notice. So I think this is exactly like him sort of you know it's some it's i mean i i don't i've never tried amphetamines but i'm assuming it's like super coffee <laughs> it's like yeah. you know how you drink a nice cup of coffee and you're sort of perked up and you're more intelligent you're faster right it's like uh-huh. that and then of course coming down off of it um has got to be i've seen the effects on on people it's got to be like yeah, you're you're listless and and yet you can't sleep and you're so there's something like that. And I mean, in reading that Philip K. Dick fans page about how he wrote this, he says uh, something to the effect that um, he let his unconscious take over very very early in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's in that um, uh, hour twenty five interview. Did you guys read through that on the Flowcatics no. page? Oh, no. very well worth reading. Okay. Um, you can also, I think, download and listen to that, or it might be on YouTube. Um, uh, let's see. I'll type in unconscious and see if we can get it. Unconscious. There we go. Um, oh, yeah. I'll just read you. This is from uh, the Hour 25 interview. Uh, for Ubik, I got $10,000 for for the paperback, of which I got 5000 and Doubleday double day got the other five. Poor <laughs> <laughs> Phil. Um, by the Poor way, yeah, um, he got paid $1,000 from the, the book club, uh, science fiction book club, um, mm-hmm. which is an advance on six cents a copy. <laughs> Can you imagine getting paid six cents? For a novel, you know, uh, every time somebody buys my novel, I get six cents. Yeah, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> Anyways, um, he says, 
uh, of all the interviewer says, of all the novels you've written, I guess my own particular favorites are The Man in the High Castle and, of course, Ubik. Dick says, Ubik? Interviewer, Ubik. Dick says, Ubik. The French call it Ubik. <laughs> Dick's Ubik. It's called Ubik, Mia Signor in Italian. I guess that means Ubik, my dear sir, or something like that. Well, it does. I, I looked it up. And then uh, interviewer says, Oh, no, this is philokinetic still. You don't just write whatever comes into your head while you're sitting there in front of the typewriter. When I wrote U- Ubik, I got about 12 pages done and couldn't think of anything else, so I just wrote whatever came into my mind. I wrote it from <laughs> my unconscious. I let the right hemisphere of my brain do all the thinking, and I was surprised as anybody as to what came out. In France, of course, it's considered... I, I tweeted this at you guys this morning, I think. In France, it's considered a great novel because it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> in France, oh, in France, it's a roman de fantastique. Uh, ever since Alfred Jerry hit town, they've loved his stuff, and that doesn't make any sense. Maybe it does make sense when you translate it into French. Maybe I'm a great writer in France because I've got good translators. <laughs> Interviewer, you are better known, I think, in France than you are here. Dick says, Germany, France, England too. Interviewer. You wrote a screenplay for one of your own works, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote a good screenplay. I wrote a really good one for Ubik. Boy, there's there's Gremshaw's Law. Uh, sorry, Gresham's Law, not Gremshaw's. Gresham's Law. I don't know how it applies to science fiction writing in general, but it sure applies to screenplays. The bad screenplays force the good ones out. Give a choice. Given a choice, they'll make a movie out of a bad screenplay and throw the good screenplay back at the author. Interviewer. Aww. If I remember the Rolling Stone piece, that screenplay you did of Ubik is currently bouncing around Europe, still trying to get financed. Dick. It's still optioned. They're still trying to get financing for it, but there's no director. Jean-Pierre Gorin spent all the money he had, but he couldn't get the millions of dollars that he thought it would cost. Then he got sick with liver trouble, and he had to give up being a director and go teach in, down in San Francisco. I wrote a really great screenplay, and that's one thing I'm bitter about. <laughs> If I had written a novel with some of that stuff in it, I wouldn't have had any trouble selling it. But I can't sell that screenplay. Wow. I want to read this screenplay. Yeah. I'd like to see the movie based on that screenplay. Yeah. How long, does it say how long after the book you wrote the screenplay? I do not Uh, know. It's apparently, it might be out of print, but it says on... I'm on the Folk K. Dick fan site. Ubik the Springfly was eventually published by Corby Press in 1985. This is a beautiful edition with many colored plates by Ronald Lindline, Val Kimley Lindline, and Doug Rice illustrating the text. There's also a deluxe edition of 50 signed by the artists Tim Powers, Paul Williams, and with signatures cut from PAKD's old checks tipped in. Both these editions are quite valuable to collectors. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good luck with us finding, ever finding the darn thing. I want to see those illustrations. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious how many years between him writing looks the like... novel and the screenplay as well, because uh, like maybe when he's had a bit of time to think about his own novel, he might have a different interpretation of it. I've got it here. It says, uh, in September 74, French film producer J.P. Gorin visited Dick in his home after an enthusiastic conversation between the two. Gorin paid PKD $1,500 to write a screenplay. Screenplay to be finished by the end of next year, so 75. <gasps> Yeah. Guys, 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 guys! Yeah. Uh, you can you can buy it. You can buy a digital uh, ebook of the screenplay on Amazon. If it has color illustrations, I'm I'm in. 
I don't think it has the illustrations. It just looks like it's just the text. Terrible. I actually saw it at my library as well. But wow. I, yeah, I have to get that. Wow. Cool. To borrow that. Um, let's see. There's a let's see. There's a paperback for. I don't think it has the, the illustrations either. But there's also a paper version of the screenplay. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't have. The, it doesn't have those lovely illustrations. So the reason I think it would be kind of interesting is because I think he's kind of like us, where sometimes he even struggles to figure out what he was actually writing about. Absolutely. So <laughs> it'd be quite cool to see him like rewrite something in that way. Uh, yeah. Um, try, if there's a few yeah, years try to reinterpret his own work. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and the thing about film, right, is that when you you're it you can show things on screen that do a lot more. They're all visual metaphors right visual right metaphors. yeah and it, it could work incredibly well uh, you know like the little i don't know unicorn in blade runner or whatever right um mm-hmm. that it can it can work incredibly well but um reading it on the script is not the same as seeing it right being told what you're seeing is not the same and philip k dick is the opposite right he's all dialogue there's almost no description Mm-hmm. There's actually quite a bit of description in in this novel, for, for some reason, about everybody's clothes. Um, and I, yeah, they really is. They're really colorfully <laughs> uh, clothed, um, and I, I think it almost plays up against the uh, the sort of the retro elements with all the 1939 this and 1933 that sort of, you know, him <laughs> projecting into the 1990s. This is how we're all we're all going to dress like. Sergeant yeah. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band members. Yeah, he's like looking around at the '60s and trying to imagine that. In a, Everybody's in the wearing 90s. captains' hats and knee-length uh, <laughs> purple socks. And <laughs> well, well, have you that rogues gallery of uh, anti-psychics that Runcitter gets together? Yeah, they just like yeah, it's like that. They're I can see if I can find a description of how they're all described. It's just like it's like a. Like he, he he decided to go all out and creating his uh crew of uh people to go with Joe. It's like, <laughs> well, mm. we get a description um when um uh the first the first time we get a description of clothing is when the girl comes a Pat uh, right and she starts taking her clothes off almost right away. She he says, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a funny scene. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, now it's your turn, Pat said, so to speak. Uh, may I take my take off my boots? <laughs> and then, and he says, "Are you sure you want to do that?" He said, "Take your clothes off." I mean, Pat said, "You don't remember? Remember what? My not taking my clothes off in another present? You didn't like that very well, so I eradicated that. Hence this." She stood up lively. <laughs> um, and then we get the description um, here: bending, her breast wagging forward, she rummaged in the pocket of her blouse. Brought forth a folded sheet of paper, and then uh, what's this year? Uh, it's the document that he's about to sign, right? So the the taking on and off of clothing, but mostly taking off, uh, uh-huh. happens a whole bunch <laughs> of times. Here, here's I'm just I typed in take off, and it shows off take, yeah, take off into the text, and it's in there ten times in the whole novel. So he says, here, wow. listen to this. Um, uh, I don't know what chapter this is. 
Uh, is it not the assumption, however, Tamish said, that the missing size are at work uh, as a group for one of the larger investment houses? Seeing as how this is probably so, perhaps we should stress one of our better, our business establishment commercials. And then, um, do you perhaps recall this one, Mr. Runciter? It shows a husband home from his job at the end of the day. He still has on his electric yellow cummerbund <laughs> pedal skirt. Knee, he's got a skirt on. The man's got a skirt on. Knee-hugging hose and a military-style <laughs> visored cap. He seats himself wearily on the living room couch, starts to take off his gauntlets, <laughs> then yeah. hunches yeah. over, frowns, and says, Gosh, Jill, I wish I knew what's been wrong with me lately. He's having the, that uh, I've, I'm off my meds, my drugs are wearing off moment, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes with greater frequency, almost every day, the least little remark at the office makes me think that, well, somebody's reading my mind. Then she says, if you're worried about that, why don't you? we contract the nearest prudence organization? They'll lease us an iner- inertial. Uh, by the way, inertia. Inertial is good. Yeah. That's really good stuff. At mm. prices easy on our budget. And then you'll feel like your old self again. Then this great smile appears on his face. And she, she's describing a commercial, right? And then he's not interested. But uh, why is this nagging feeling? All right. So next one with takeoff. No, that's from the aircraft. Yeah. I've, 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 I've got the, uh, the descriptions of all, all the psychics and yeah, they're just as it. wild. Okay. So so this is this is back when he wants to get them all together. I say, okay, so John Ild once said, the Adelson boy with the tousled woolly hair grunted in response. His arrogance joke noted seemed to have receded. The boy now seemed introverted, even a little shaken. Skipping down, Francesca Spanish, the luminous gypsy-like dark woman radiating a peculiar jangled tautness spoke up. Jangled, by the <laughs> um, way, from our last PKD. Yeah, yep. Um, goes to, we'll even go down a little further. Tio Pastos, a bald-headed man wearing wagging a goatish beard. Wagging a beard. I love that. Pointed to himself. He wore old-fashioned, hip-hugging, gold lame trousers. It somehow <laughs> created a stylish effect. Perhaps the egg-sized buttons of his kelp green minty blouse helped. <laughs> In any case, he exuded the grand dignity. Don Denny, right here. Um rose from within a slender, earnest-looking individual, sat bolt right in his chair, his hands on his knees. He wore a polyester dirndl, his long hair in a snood, <laughs> cowboy chaps with simulated silver stars and sandals. <laughs> Sammy Mundo, a weak-nosed young man, dressed in a maxi skirt with an undersized melon-like head, stuck his hand up in a spasmodic, wobbling, tick-like gesture, as if Joe thought the anemic body had done it by himself. It's very hi- hippie it's, it's like hippie hippie uh, fashion or something. Yeah. Yeah. Near uh, okay, so seeing her face, he discovered his own consistent a garish mask. Noticing her body made him feel like a low class wind up there. All her colors possessed a subtle quality indirectly let her eyes, those green and tumbled stones, looked impassively as at everything. He had never seen fear in them or aversion or contempt. I noticed okay, that, that a was, couple of times that he used that tumbled eyes um, tumbled thing. eyes. Yeah, because at first I was I mm. thought it oh, that's a weird that's a strange like it's, maybe it's just the, a writing error. Or, yeah, no, yeah, here it but is. But he uses it a couple of times. Here's a, here's another instance. But beside him lounged a long-legged girl with brilliant tumbling black hair. Mm-hmm. Okay, stumbling groggily. We also get 
Uh, here's the her eyes, those green and tumbled stones look impassively at everything. Yeah. It's funny, right? Yeah, there's a few strange writing quirks in here. Actually, another one with the eyes, which I couldn't... I never know with Philip K. Dick if it's a mistake or if it's like something he's coding into the story that we're supposed to notice. Mm -hmm. But at the start of the book, um, like, Alice's eyes change color. So it's like... I'm like, is that like a, is this like a clue or is this just a copy editing error? Yeah. <laughs> you can never tell. Well, yeah, with Philip Dick, you just don't know. Well, I, I, yeah. I want to, I want to actually talk about a, a bit about this and go, it's sort of going back to what Ubik is or Ubik is. Um, so, uh, I don't, I think it's a, a lot of books recently I've been reading that sort of may, tip me onto this idea. Um, Generally, we think of, you know, here's what good is and here's what bad is, right? Um, and bad is anything that's against X, and X is good. And generally, we think that, you know, uh, genocide is a bad thing. <laughs> we always think, oh, yeah, generally. yeah, you know, I don't know. <laughs> All things being equal, genocide is probably a bad thing, right? Um, and the reason we think that is because we don't like it when people die, which makes sense, right? However, um, life is pretty fucking horrible. And if you want to increase the amount of suffering in the universe, make more things that can suffer, right? Mm -hmm. That's true. (laughs) So um, if you have a being that comes to life and can exist and then feel pain and then, I don't know, get eaten by something else, which is pretty much all of... Uh, life, right, is either getting eaten by something else or crushed by a rock or something like that. It's It, it doesn't end well for any particular piece of life, whatever it is. Um, you kind of don't like that, that aspect of life. On the other hand, you want to preserve life and not uh, cause suffering, and that's pretty hard. So, we've got all this problem. So, one way of thinking about it is you just uh, you say no life at all, and that's uh, uh, basically. I was thinking about this book, and maybe Paul would be interested. I don't know if Marissa would, but uh, Fred Saberhagen's uh, Berserker books, which is, oh yeah, I, I read a bunch of. It's those. It's about robots that basically want to destroy all living things, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> which kind of makes yep. sense, right? In a certain sense, um, you kind of feel sympathy for them a little bit. Uh, on the other hand, we're not robots generally, so. Um, how does this all relate? Basically, the reason life is terrible, and the reason H.P. Uh, Lovecraft flirts with this a lot as well, the reason we want to get out of l- this game of life and not participate in it in any sort of cycle like you see in The Turning Wheel or um, in any reincarnation mythology or reality is because life is suffering, and that's sort of the idea behind it. So if you can escape from the cycle, you're, you're better. But life is actually the only thing in the universe so far that, we, that I know about, or pretty much anybody knows about, that is anti-entropic. And this book is wholly, I think, about entropy on at least one level. And, uh, about, and, trying, to, and trying to fight it. And trying to fight it, right? So... We normally think of that ubic and the spray and all the drugs and all that as being anti-entropic or anti-psychedelic is another way of interpreting it, right? But um, God is the one who created life in the mythology, right? Not it didn't. It's not a lightning bolt in a primitive 
puddle of uh, chemicals, right? <laughs> it's God who created. And what is God's promise is that, you know, this is going to be your wonderful place to live. And then we betray him or something. And, and then hence all the suffering. But that's only one interpretation of God. There's also the Demiurge, right? Who is, uh, uh, let me, I'm looking it up now because I don't know what I'm talking about. Demiurge is like a broken, lesser version of God that makes a failed creation, but there's truth in, true people in that creation who are trapped by the Demiurge who who are being hidden from the true God. And that is basically what almost half of Philip K. Dick's novels seem to be about. Um, Oh yeah, he's really on this Gnostic kick, yeah. Um, So... I don't, I don't even know how to spell Demiurge. <laughs> D-E-M-I-U-R-G, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to go to Wikipedia and then type in Demiurge because <laughs> DuckDuckGo is not working for me. Um, so what do, you, what do you think of this um, in context, what I'm saying with this book and Ubik being an anti, sort of a, it's a booster Sorry. strap on on uh, oh. life itself. <laughs> okay. Okay, so so Ubik is the real god, and so um, the de- so the demiurge is all of the subworlds, sort of of Runsitter. Well, and, well, well a, a, a demiurge is, is 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 a being, so it's not it's not Joe Chip, it's uh, Jory. Jory is a demiurge, right? But and, but at and, the end, and, it might be that you know that because uh, Runsitter is, is the final narrator, right? Runcer is the final narrator, and he sees a coin with uh, Joe Chip's face on it at the end, right? I, I I think I think Joe Chip, in in the true Gnostic sense, if you want to go for this Gnostic interpretation of Ubik, that thanks to Ubik, Joe is transcending that the subworld. Thanks thanks to the reification of Ubik, allowing him to escape uh, the trap of the demiurge jury and into a higher level than. Even Runciter is, and that's why Runciter sees coins with Joe Chip's face on it at the end of the novel, because Joe Chip has gone from below him, because Runciter was above him at one point. Right. Because it's kind of like him. Inception. Is I was thinking that Inception was the it, movie version, movie, movie adaptation of this, right? Everybody's in levels, you know. Yes, every, every, mm-hmm. every, everybody's in levels, and who is in what level and why is a or the Major matrix question or of, what, you know what, what it's all very much like that and there even in here there seems to be a sense that um time is frozen uh, a lot more in on the level of being inside a uh a freezer <laughs> what are the, what are our freezers called i can't remember more cold pack cold, cold pack, pack and more more uh, what was the uh, more there's another mortician or, it's not mortician it's like that though mortician uh, the moratorium. Moratorium, like the yeah. So they, mor- that's yeah. what I, moratorium is the state you're in, right? And the cold pack is the actual freezer, mm-hmm. right? And you're all packed in there. And we've seen that in other uh, other Dick novels, right? There's one where half the population is frozen because they have no jobs and the economy's broken. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the one that starts uh, off with a super racist guy uh, telling a bunch of uh, Mexicans that they can't have jobs. Because he's racist. <laughs> I don't right. remember which novel that is, but that, that's how it starts <laughs> off. Um, oh, maybe that's uh, the one with the doctor. Um, doctor Futurity? No. The, the, no. Um, 
No, I don't remember which one it is. Oh no, what's uh, happened to our minds with all these Philip K. Dick books? It's, they're sitting too close together, like in the freezer, in the cold pack. And yeah. They're merging Definitely. together. I mean, that, that feels like what... So I was going in this direction with the demiurge and, and crack in space. Crack in space. Crack in space. Crack in space. That's all the people in cold pack. Right. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> they're all merging together. Um, so <laughs> we have done a lot of okay, Dick. So uh, this the idea of um, of escaping from entropy is, I think, sort of the fundamental grounding of where this book is coming out of. Right. Yeah. I can't say that it's grounded in this because that doesn't make any sense in this particular. But how the Guardian article was saying it, it's squishy right at the very center of the, the reality is squishy. It can be bent in this direction, but it, there's something there. It's just you can't there's no firm ground in any case. Um, escaping from entropy is 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 the idea life. Then this is not particularly in this novel, but this is, I think, what he's dealing with in just a, a, in a way that Lovecraft deals with it in a different way, in that it's uh, life is actually very problematic, and yet it's our way of escaping from the horror of entropy. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It's never a permanent solution, right? So you can't just escape by creating some DNA because the DNA breaks down, and the only way it can right. perpetuate itself. However. What's so cool is that fiction, especially novels, right, can be preserved. And so when you, when Marissa, you said, uh, I'm not sure if it's a typo, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. The preservation of that, that text is like the preservation of the DNA. And I, I spent a lot of my time looking at the original texts of things. I'll try and find the earliest scan of a, or not even the earliest scan, the earliest publication. Like, so for example, yesterday I was reading a version of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, poem called The Valley of Unrest. And it was going along fine. It was from a scan I had not used before with my student. And I, I had it memorized, right? I know this poem backwards and forwards, but not the final stanza or the final f- few lines. They're different. Right. The fact is, is as time goes by in the publication industry, people fiddle with stuff. Right. And the fact that two of the words were italicized in the version that I was using, uh, the first publication, deeply changed the meaning of the poem. Because a poem is like a super concentrated um, story. Right. Each sentence is an image. Each image is is affected by not just the words but the way the words are placed so uh the the way i was explaining how italicization works to my student yesterday is you know you can ask me jesse do you like pizza somebody asked me jesse do you like pizza do you like jesse Jesse? (laughs) yes i like pizza now that's one way of answering that question. However, we can just give the sentence, and that could be the first sentence in the book. And the sentence is, I like pizza, right? That's the first sentence of the of the book. And if the sentence has an italicization on the word I, the word and everything that came before the novel start is completely different. So it's, I like pizza. That, mm-hmm. that suddenly means that 
who likes pizza is the question, right? Next one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like pizza. The question was, how did you feel about, how do you feel about pizza? Or what do you like? And then the, and the answer is, I like pizza, right? So the very fact that we, we can have a question as to what the correct text is, is actually what this novel is uh, about in a certain sense, because a novel is a pre- is a fixed thing, right? It has a beginning, a middle, an end. It has a word count. It has periods, punctuations, quotation marks. It has. Uh, I, I re- I'm not sure that the font affects it, but pretty much everything from beginning to end, all of that formatting, is a way of preserving a kind of life and a world that is outside of our reality in the in the kind of horrible way that our reality is always bending and changing. And it's a way of preserving history in a certain sense, too. And mm. thinking about how that works in a meta context, which I think this is kind of... I don't think Philip K. Dick goes there with this book, but I was thinking a lot about this during the book, the reading of the book, how he's holding uh, some ubic in his hand and it starts regressing, right? And it becomes something lesser. Or he's going to the airport and the airplanes are getting progressively older, Right. So he has to get there before a certain amount. And his time, car too, right? So that ch- the the changing con yeah the changing context um, is showing there's no fixed ground, nothing safe. We can't escape the dread horror of entropy. And yet a novel preserved with no changes, which is the ideal. But the bigger the novel is, and the more time goes by, the more the changes happen. Right. Right. Yeah. And so it's very meta and very interesting to think about it that way. But that's Mm. kind of what I've spent a lot of my time thinking about while the novel was playing. You know, it's like, wow, how that that fits in with this. Wow. So. Yeah, and and like Ubik is kind of um, doing that job of what. Right. It's like copying a text. Yeah, it's like trying to spray a gloop or preserver over some some area here because we don't want it to change anymore and the Mm -hmm. it's it's funny because you can sort of feel he's constructing it on the fly because the coins at the beginning where he can't get his doors open because he doesn't have any coins uh, no money and then he borrows one from the lady and the lady's job right the her special psychic power is to change reality in the past so that and that makes me think about how, um, you know, you have some politician come on TV to talk about her new book, <laughs> not mentioning any names. Um, <laughs> and she talks about her new book and she says, this is what happened and this is what happened and this was what happened. And a lot of people, yeah, they say, yep, yep, yep. And they don't they say, wait, is that really what happened? Can, can't we like find some alternative, not facts, but alternative uh history of to what actually did take place or video or even like newspaper articles or something that's really fixed and unchangeable and compare those facts to what this person says happened and most people Mm -hmm. uh, we just we this is our default mode is we start we hear a fact come well we hear something come out of someone's mouth my default and i think most people's default is to just believe it and then it's only yeah. a second step it's, to say, wait, 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 
that's a, that could be a lie, or there, uh, can we doubt this, or is there one like the, it, we believe our senses on the very first step with our eyes or our ears. So somebody says there is a mouse on the floor, I don't say bullshit. I say, oh really? Wow. And then I want to go look. Now, if this is a person who lies all the time, I, I might not automatically believe them, but I, I that's my default to start that way. We start with believing our senses. And this whole book is about sort of deceiving, seeing how everything is deceiving, including your memory. I mean, this is sort of a yeah, eternal Yeah, because he kind of talks, he talks about that with, um, because it's like what you're saying, it's like our shared reality. We have to like, we hear something, we learn something, and we just accept it as reality, especially if everyone around us is also accepting that same reality. 100%. Which is a, which is a good way sometimes because then you know, like it is useful to do that because then you know you're not crazy if you're the only person who can see something and everyone else can't see it. You're, you might have a problem. But then the other side of that is that if everyone is delusional, then, you know, or believing something crazy. And I think he kind of talks about that in Ubik where – whenever the people split up, you know, like mm-hmm. their reality starts dissolving and they're fading and they, they have to hang together to keep this, whatever it is, this right. fiction yeah. world together. Their religion or, or their reality. Yeah. And so they're the half world, their tomb world. Yeah. Their tomb. Well, good point. It's another tomb world, mm-hmm. isn't it? It's another tomb world. They don't use that phrase, but it so is a tomb world, especially when things start going really backwards. We haven't invoked the name yet, but uh, Jory is another Palmer Aldrich. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Oh, he absolutely is. Right. He, yeah. I mean, he's Assuming he's not from the evil. outside. He's from the inside, right? He's from, and he, and and thinking about how um, when Runciter visits visits his wife in Switzerland or talks to her in Switzerland, does he get her on yeah, the he, phone? He, he, he doesn't fly there. He gets her on the phone. Yeah, he does fly there. Okay. He, he goes to the place because he because he. Because he gets this, he get he wants to get to the office by himself because he can't talk to with everybody else there. He, he wants some privacy, mm-hmm. and then and then he insists though she, she can't be next to this jury tank right. because that's that's degrading her. She like I'll pay more if it's just put her in the office by herself. No, he go he definitely flies there. It's one of those Philip K. Dicks. Yeah. It's like people flying around and going to the moon and just taking it all for granted without any muss or fuss about the time or how long it takes or the cost it takes. Yeah. It, there's a lot of cheap travel again in this yep. novel, which is <laughs> okay. Dick theme There's so, well, I just uh, thinking about how he deals with her and how she is living. Like she seems like very, uh, at least the narrator, the Anthony Hill narration, he feels like he's, she's very sprightly, even though she's uh, sort of fading as well. She seems like, uh, he he mentioned somebody's name. Uh, what's the what's the Melopone? SP Melopone. SP Melopone. <laughs> I think it's SP. Uh, uh, he says he says to his wife, um, "Hey, I, I've got a problem. Uh, we're we're losing SP Melopone." And she says, "What is an SP Melopone?" <laughs> he says, and he and he says, "Oh, he's our. You remember? He's our anti-psychic or whatever." And no. Well, he, yeah, he's the psychic that they're trying to keep under control, and that's a, and and that's a plot line that completely gets dropped once Runcer yes, dies. Absolutely, I I think it's just an like he doesn't know what he's doing yet. He's starting off the novel. He's starting in this direction. Um, I want to find Melopone. How do you spell Melopone? Yeah. 
Oh, here we go. Estol Melipon. I mean, once Rutsuda dies, no one cares anymore about anti-talents being uh, disappearing. And where did they disappear? There's like a mystery there that... Sorry. Eventually doesn't get uh, resolved. It's like, what happened? What happened to all those? Because they're all... Because they're all disappearing. That was the... That was the implication was getting in the first few chapters that like all these talents are just like gone missing and no one knows why. And Melpone and and basically Runcer is afraid of for the future of his business. And it's like, but it doesn't seem to matter anymore. It might matter once Runcer dies. I mean, I mean, yeah, Joe and everyone else have bigger problems, but they don't seem to want they. I mean, once we go back to Runcer's uh, point of view, he doesn't seem to uh, to care uh, to care too much about. It. I mean, he he yeah. just wants to talk, he wants to he wants to talk to uh, to Ella again in that last chapter. Um, okay, I'm going to read. This, I'm going to read this entire last chapter Thank because you. because I, I I think it's short. Yeah, it is really. And short. I think it's important. I am Ubik. Before the universe was, I am. I made the suns. I made the worlds. I created the lives and the places they inhabit. I move them here. I put them there. They go as I say. They do as I tell them. I am the word, and my name is never spoken, the name which no one knows. I am called Ubik, but that is not my name. I shall always be. Glenn Runciter could not find the moratorium owner. Are you sure you don't know where he is? Runciter asked Miss Beeson, the moratorium's owner secretary. It's essential I talk to L.A. again. I'll have her brought out, Miss Beeson said. You may off, use Office 4B. Please wait there, Mr. Runster. I'll have your wife for you in a very short time. Please to make yourself comfortable. Locating Office 4B, Runster paced her about restlessly. A last moratorium attendant appeared, wheeling in Ella's casket on a hand truck. Sorry to keep you waiting, the attendant said. He began at once to set up the electronic commuting mechanism, hunting happily as he worked. In short order, the task was completed. The attendant checked the circuit one last time, nodded in satisfaction, and then started to leave the office. This is for you, Runcerter said, and handed him several 50-cent pieces which he had scrounged from his various pockets. I appreciate the rapidity with which you accomplished the job. Thank you, Mr. Runcerter, the attendant said. He glanced at the coins and then frowned. What kind of money is this? Yeah, he said. Runcerter took a good look at the 50-cent pieces. He saw at once what the attendant meant. Very definitely, the coins were not as they should be. Whose profile was this? He asked himself. Who's this on all three coins? Not the right person at all. And yet he's familiar. I know him. And then he recognized the profile. I wonder what this means, he asked himself. Strangest thing I've ever seen. Most things in life eventually can be explained, but Joe Chip on a 50 cent piece? It was the first Joe Chip money he had ever seen. He had an intuition, chilling me, that if he searched his pockets as Bill thought, he would find more. This was just the beginning. Mm. So... So by the end, Runciter, I mean, I mean, reality is rattling around Runciter. He's, he's gone back to Switzerland. He wants to talk to Ellen, but the whole anti-psychic thing is, well, maybe that's why he wants to talk to Ella about the, but that, but it's, it's, it's a plot that starts off. And then, as you said, Jesse, he seems to not really interested in knowing what he's doing. And that whole plot goes away until the last chapter where Runster is back to reality and yeah. back to the quotidian concerns about keeping his business going. So he's got to talk to Ella again because Ella is the real brains behind the operation. And Runster Runster's just plotting along I'm going as best to, he can. I'm going to cast a spell on you, both of you, uh, by invoking <laughs> the title of a very recent novel we read, 
and then reading this section uh, from the first meeting with her uh, with Ella. Um, okay. And the name of the novel is Counterclock World. Here you go. Uh oh. Yeah, Runciter said, nodding. The Bardol Fodol, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, tells us about that. You remember reading that. The doctors made you read it when you were. He hesitated. Dying, he said then. The smoking red light is bad, isn't it? Ella said. The smoky red light. Yeah, you want to avoid it. He cleared his throat. Listen, Ella, we've got problems. You're, you feel up to hearing about it? I mean, I don't want to overtax you or anything. Just say if you're too tired or if there's something else you want to hear about or discuss. It's so weird. I think I've been dreaming all this time since you last talked to me. Is it really two years? Do you think, Glenn, that I think... Uh, do you know, Glenn, what I think? I think that other people who are around me, we seem to be progressively growing together. A lot of my mm -hmm. dreams are about me, aren't about me at all. Sometimes I'm a man and sometimes I'm a little boy. Sometimes I'm all an old fat woman with varicose veins. And I'm in and I'm in places I've never seen, doing things that make no sense. Well, they say you're heading for a new womb to be born out of. <laughs> And that smoky ah. red light, that's a bad womb. You don't want to go that way. That's a humiliating <laughs> low sort of womb. You're probably anticipating your next life or whatever it is. He felt foolish talking like this. Normally, he had no theological convictions. But the half-life half experience was real, and it made theologians out of all of them. <laughs> Very Philip K. Dick. Uh, turning mm -hmm. uh, sort of mid-morning... -mor hypnagogic state into a science science fiction reality uh, <laughs> hey he said changing the subject let me tell you what's happened what's made me come here and bother you s dull melopone has dropped out of sight a moment of silence and then ella laughed who or what is an s dull melopone there can't be any such thing that laugh or the laugh the unique familiar warmth of it made his spine tremble he remembered the that about her even so many years after so many years he had not heard ella's laugh in over a decade maybe you've forgotten he said ella said i haven't forgotten and that's i'm starting to rethink like why it is that she hasn't forgotten because it wasn't there before anyways mm. i haven't forgotten i would i wouldn't forget about an estol melopone is it like a hobbit <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then it's Raymond Hollis's top telepath, right? So, uh, why does he visit her to get advice? That's his explanation. Um, just like later on, uh, Runciter is in in the cold pack, and Chip goes to visit. He says, "You know, I'm in charge. Uh, the only thing that'll say different is if the people in cold pack will." say different right the ella and and uh Runciter are in if they say i'm not the boss then i'm not the boss but i'm the boss right now and so mm -hmm. the idea of consulting the dead in order to make decisions about a corporation is a pretty funny idea but i think the the fact that like she says i i don't know what dick's thinking at this point when he says um you know, you you need to advise me about Estol Melipone, and then when he goes there and she doesn't know who he is, we just drop it, and it seems like it's like a just a cutesy th thing with that. Is it is it like a Hobbit? And then he explains plot points about stuff that doesn't really matter. But then when he goes back to visit her, what's he visiting her for again? It's because he loves her, right? 
loves, he loves her. her. Yeah, and that's really the excuse is uh, oh, I have a business decision to make, but actually he there's no business in this book at all. Right, <laughs> the business of being and, uh, alive is the business, right? I, I, yeah, I mean, I, just I mean, yeah, she, she tries. She says some things about oh, advertising and whatnot, but yeah, I think yeah, I think he just wants an exp- excuse to go to Switzerland and see his dead wife because he still misses her. Yeah, and just to like ha- have his reality like emerging into this book again, which they do in all of his books. Um, and Dick mentions that she thinks he's talking about her in this book, I like where so, he's yeah. he's left her and he's calling her up for business advice yeah, and stuff yeah, every bullshit, now and then. Yeah. He's really just missing his wife, yeah. totally. <laughs> his ex-wife. Totally. And then so, so, her advice to him is step up your TV ads. Warn yeah. people, <laughs> yeah. tell them, right? Um, so that's Anne Dick saying you need to send off more more uh, uh, manuscripts, right? Mail off more Correct manuscripts. Yourself. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be fine. Just mail off more manuscripts to them, right? Yeah. It was also so. What do you think about Ella? So, um, like, how do you relate that to Counterclock World? Like, she's she's really in this half-life and about to be reborn? No, I, I, I think that's bullshit. I think that they're frozen and they're frozen at the point of death like uh, we've seen in other books. And that there is, you know, they're, they're basically, yeah, they're like, it's it's a cryogenics book where the promise is like all, in basically all cryogenic stories, unless that's the start of the novel with somebody coming out of it, it's all bullshit, right? It's just mm-hmm. a way of pr- avoiding death. Um, and, you know, the, that stuff about the red light. Um, does Joe Chip ever come out of his? Uh, see, I think it is. you keep going. Like, if you're living in a half-life, it's like a demi-urge, right? You're living in a half-world. Mm-hmm. The way Jory l- creates the world. Um, each of these people is creating the world. I mean, this is really... I mean, fundamentally, that there's a really weird, uh, long part of that interview on um, the Philip K. Dick fans page that I think a lot of people might not take very seriously, but I, I would guess is actually pretty interesting and perhaps even based in reality, which is when Philip K. Dick says about how the Soviet Union had some scientists who wanted to talk to him about this novel. <laughs> and he says something like, they want he they invited me to come visit them and... Um, <laughs> like really bullshit bullshit artist Philip K. Dick really, um, but then he says, uh, and then a limousine. Pull, I said no, but a limousine came up, pulled up, and it, they were from the Soviet embassy, and they came in, and they talked to me for an hour, and they asked me questions about about Ubik, right? <laughs> he says, they asked me questions about Ubik, and I I I I played dumb. I I I told him I didn't know anything. <laughs> It's like he's he's trying to avoid being thought of as a communist or something, right? <laughs> but he's also sort of damning himself by saying, yes, yes, they did contact me, right? Um, uh, which is classic Dick, right? He he is he's he's both. That's straight out of that other novel, what um, uh, the drug cop novel that's also a movie with Keanu Reeves, uh, Scanner Darkly, right? Um, where he's yeah, both he's point. both the drug dealer and also the drug uh, cop, right? He's informing on himself. That's what yeah. what he's doing in, it, and it's, in this interview. And is that what's happening in um, Ubik as well? Like, well, I, I it's uh, good question. Is Joe Chip 
creating a world inside Rancid's world, think, inside Joe Chip's that world. Absolutely, that is absolutely <laughs> one way. But to connect it to our reality, right? Um, so we actually don't have access to reality. We only have our constructs of it. This is literally true, right? As mm-hmm. far as we can tell, the way our brains work is there is no knowing what the things are like. There's only knowing what things appear to be like. And there's many essays written about this. There's a classic famous philosophy one called What It Is Like to Be a Bat, right? You know, because (laughs) they have echolocation. We don't have echolocation. They don't have language. We have language. They can communicate, but that's not language. You know, like what, what what it would be like to be a bat or what it would be like to be a woman, I think, is a lot closer because a, a lot of people are doing that these days. You know, they're switching over, changing teams. They can maybe have some like and people do. They have these reports like uh, now that I'm taking these hormones, right, I'm feeling completely. Di- I act differently. I feel differently. And I don't think they're all lying. I think that they you know, if you change your body's chemistry and you put drugs into your body, they do change your perceptions and your reactions. So mm-hmm. because we're all trapped in our own little worlds, um, when Runciter sees those coins change to unusable coins like Joe Chip saw coins change to Runciter coins, right? It, In a certain sense... When Ella is saying, um, I feel like I'm an old woman, I feel like I'm a boy, sometimes I feel like I'm a man, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's because it's Philip K. Dick creating all these characters. And sometimes he's he's uh, uh, not S.P. Estol Melopone, but he's he's definitely Runciter sometimes. And he's Hollis, and he's, he's Ella, and he kind of channels them, right? Becomes them in a certain sense, at least for a, a brief period of time. And, and so what's so cool about this book is this is a way, if you have a fixed text, you can escape from whatever shared reality you're sharing with your your family that, you know, we don't like those people next door who do whatever it is. This is a way, this is a fixed text that you can engage with, but which... Um, has some fixed reality that isn't as squishy as the regular reality. Of course, that's what the book is. Right. It's completely squishy. But there are words on a page that go down, and hopefully, 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 the copy you've got on your shelf doesn't change between readings. It's only you who's changed between readings. That's our only yeah. hope. And because the thing in the story that tell, is supposed to tell you what's reality and what's not, and... um. Philip K. Dick kind of talks about this in Next Jesus as well. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's the anomalies that you're picking up that is like telling you they're the clues of like, is this real or is it not real? That's because this those, thing doesn't make sense. Those those eye color changes are so important, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's why you're looking at everything and you're paying attention, and it, it looks like an error, but you can't tell. And yeah, it's and is even, it a clue? Is it not a clue? Even if we checked, even if we checked this, the, the the we all checked the text I'm looking at right now, and we found out that oh, actually, Mar- Marissa's made an error, um, that there is no eye color change. She just, you know, she maybe misheard it or something. Um, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't negate the point because that's the whole point of the book, at least right. one one of the do whole you, points of the book. Do, you, do you, I'll tell you another really weird uh-huh. one of these like anom- anomalies, <laughs> anomalies yes, that I please. found. Um, I don't know if you guys noticed because I didn't notice in the audio. It was only when I was reading it 
that after the explosion, when they're all on the um, the pratfall mm-hmm. <laughs> spaceship, whatever it's called, pratfall too. Mm-hmm. So we're in Joe's point of view, and he's got runs at his body that he's taking back to Earth. And then there's one paragraph where suddenly we're in Glenn runs at his point of view, and he's looking at Joe in um, cold pack and saying that. Joe is resting within its transparent plastic cake casket, mm-hmm. upright and silent as he would be for the rest of eternity. And then it goes straight back to Joe's point of view. Like there's no transition or. Yeah. So it's like. What was that phrase again? I've got it, uh, got it here. Removing the plastic disc from its place, its firm adhesion to his ear, Glenn Rensiter said to the microphone, I'll see you to. Uh, I'll talk to you later. He said. Down all communications apparatus, rose stiffly from the chair, momentarily stood facing the misty, immobile, icebound shape of Joe Chip, <laughs> resting within its transparent plastic casket, upright and silent as it would be for the rest of eternity. Was it and then yeah, and I was like, did you, that's did from you earlier me, in the book, sir? I think, right? And then get him, yeah. get get him instead, Mr. Vol- Vogelsang, uh, Birdsong, Mr. Birdsong. Oh, by the way, uh, there was another character's name who is a god. Um, Serapis is a god. Oh yeah, Egyptian. Huh. Yeah, uh, frozen upright. In, oh, get him in the manner of getting, get him in the manner of getting him dead. Joe said for bringing for bringing this about. Glenn Rensiter, he thought, frozen upright in a transparent transparent plastic casket ornamented with a with plastic rosebuds. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting word choice. Wakened. Yeah, and it re- it repeats that last paragraph too. Wakened into the half life activity. Uh, one hour a month, deteriorating, weakening, growing dim. Christ, he thought savagely. Of all the people in the world, a man that vital and vitalic. <laughs> Not just vital, he's vital and vitalic. Like he's a drug yeah. himself, right? Wow. And I said, I think this is the kind of, like sometimes he, it does slip out in and out of point of views. And at, at first I was kind of like, that's a weird error. Like someone should have caught that when they were like editing his manuscript but then you read it again and you're like oh shit i think he's put that that's like a little clue to what's really going on upright is actually in this nine times um and thinking about how you know this is about people being laid down in caskets and and then being upright Mm. it's actually pretty interesting isn't it true i mean i i literally think that it, it there is something it says on the on the philip k dix fan page in interview uh, another part of that interview or another interview um, where he says it's all a dream it's all dreams I've had right um, the word casket is in 19 times stuck here in this casket frozen out of the world she knew only what he told her yet he had always relied on her sagacity that particular female form of it a wisdom not based on knowledge or experience <laughs> but something innate <laughs> he had not during the period she had lived, been able to fathom it. He could, certainly could not. Maybe, maybe the whole, the whole thing is in Ella's world. I wondered that. <laughs> I did now that I'm thinking one. about it that way. Yeah, because uh, that would because explain she, it. Right? Yeah, and she there's like weird things with her as well. Like I still haven't, I couldn't figure out what to make of that scene at the end where. She turns up as the cop with little blonde pigtails right, and right, red shoes. Right. Like, <laughs> it's yeah. so weird. And yeah, I don't know. She sees this red light. She thinks she's going to be returning through her womb at some point. She's changing 
characters within this world, like how she appears to people. He's really, it's funny, this, the last couple of, um, they all, maybe they all fit together, but it, it doesn't feel like you're reading uh, completely se- separate worlds, uh, you know. Um, I, I've, I found the Technology website after I thought I should check this out, after re-listening to the first chapter, the second chapter. Um, mm-hmm. The word artiforg, remember that? Mm-hmm. Artificial, yeah. artificial um, organs. And of course, it's not just artificial organs because it's artificial uh, and forged. So it's a fake fake, right? <laughs> artificial forge, artiforg, right? So it's both artificial organ and fake organ, but also yeah. fake fake, which is also, you know, so he's got, this is the technologies in here. And we've seen a lot of these in other, other pieces. Automatic apartment maintenance, that's not probably in a lot of the other things, although the condo is exactly the same, the conapt. Cold pack bin, that's in other ones with the caskets. Um, that's in uh, Counterclock World, of course, as well, right? Homeopapes, which is in pretty much... Mo- customized ones, yeah. too. I mean, I was the, like... He, it was he Twitter feed, like, man. It was a Twitter yeah, feed. It yeah, is. It's like, I don't, want, I, I, I don't want high gossip. I want low That's gossip. That's right. So he's <laughs> unfollowing something. Yeah. Yeah, it's like... I, I was amused by that. Moratorium, of course, uh, similar to other things. Pape machine. That's just a, another short, shortened of that. Uh, physni- physiognom... Physni- physiognom physiognomic template a proto a proto amplifier a self-powered groom a toll door and a tranquilizing gum <laughs> those are the technologies invented for this there, there, there's so there, great there, there's a par- paragraph in the second to last uh, chapter which which explains ubic in Amazing technobabble. I have to read That's this. That's pretty fun. I, I think there's even a joke in there. Let's hear it. What is Ubik, Joe said, wanting her to stay? A spray can of Ubik, the girl answered, is a portable negative ionizer with a self-contained high-voltage, low-amp unit powered by a peak-gain helium battery of 25 kilovolts. The negative ions are given a counterclockwise spin by a radically biased acceleration chamber which creates a centripetal tendency to them so that they cohere rather than dissipate. A negative ion field diminishes the velocity of antiprophasons normally present in the atmosphere. As soon as their velocity falls, they cease to be antiprophasons and under the principle of parity can no longer unite with protophasons radiated from persons frozen in cold pack. That is, those in half-life. The end result is that the Proportion of protophasons not canceled out antiprophasons increases, which means for a specific time, anyhow, an increment in the net put forth field of protophasonic activity, which the affected half life or experiences as greater vitality plus a lowering of the experience of low cold pack temperatures. And uh, and then I think the next line is um, Joe Chip saying, uh, There's no such, uh, you don't need to say negative ions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like Which after all that, that's your answer. That's your response, man. There's so many funny moments like that where something horrific or strange is happening, and then he gets caught up on like a pedantic but, little. But actually, correct. that that the uh, what's so cool is that that techno babble that is bullshit, right? In complete bullshit, no science to it at all. Is just using scientific words. Now, this is actually how people 
buy products, they say, oh, this guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Or they buy books, right? This guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. He's got a PhD next to his name and or he's a doctor of uh, something. And, oh, it turns out he's a doctor of theology or whatever. Yeah, Um, all that babble mixed with the the amazing promises of Ubik that can fix everything. He's an Indian uh, guy. um, And he's always talking about the soul and quantum physics. That guy, he, oh, total bullshit uh, artist. Deepak, Deepak Chopra. Deepak Chopra. Right? Deepak Chopra. He's, he, what's what Phil K. Dick is doing in that little section, right? Is saying, look, look, I can do this bullshit. And then he yeah. has his characters. <laughs> There's no such thing as negative ions. That's redundant. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and and the thing is, is um, that's important. I think for you know, it's 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 always self-criticizing. Um, I, I like this last, uh, I want to read this last, second to last paragraph in chapter 16, second to last chapter. Um, and so he says, under a street light, he held up the spray can of Ubik, read, read the printing on the label. I think her name is Myra Laney. Look on reverse side of container for address and phone number. And, and this is the funniest line in the book for me. Thanks, Joe said to the spray can. <laughs> because that's the point where if you're watching the guy you know in the bathroom talking to his (laughs) he reads the can of you know spray foam he's about to put on his shave it says you know feels great on the face or whatever it says on the side of the can right and he says thanks spray can i mean why why that's so funny is i i catch myself doing stupid stuff like that every once in a while (laughs) and he literally puts it in the book it's like uh, <laughs> it's a it's a good point for him, but then in italics, um, and I don't know who's saying this, but this is in italics. Um, Thanks, Joe said to the spray can. Quote: uh, This is not in quotes, but this is where the italics begin. We are served by organic ghosts, he thought, who speaking and writing pass through this our new environment, watching wise physical ghosts from the full life world elements of which have become for us invading but agreeable splinters of a substance that pulsates like a former heart. Wow, what does that mean? And yeah. of all the, of them, he thought, thanks to Glenn's, Glenn Runciter, in particular the writer of instructions, labels, and notes, valuable notes. It's almost like a prayer, right? Uh-huh. He's praying to Glenn Runciter, who is the god of his world at that point. Yeah, who's sending him messages. And uh, messages of help, just like Lumbong, right? Saying, do not mm-hmm. despair, I'm still with you, right? Um, it's it's like Jesus uh, saying, don't worry, guys, I'm going away for a while, but I'll be back, right? Mm-hmm. But, that, but, but, but then that gets uh, reversed in the next chapter, it so totally, if that's true, then, totally then why is Joseph showing up on the, on the currency? Um, because they're Jesus for each other? I, I have no idea, bud. <laughs> oh, there's like two worlds: one where Runciter died and Joe lived, and one where Runciter lived and Joe died. I don't know. We it, it, they, when you go you, into you moratorium in, and you're already in moratorium, uh, you can go into a deeper moratorium. I, I guess that's the only explanation, yeah. right? It's it is the Inception sort of situation. Yeah, so Rancid is in a moratorium somewhere as well, and maybe Alice visiting him. Yeah, but there's no top level either. 
Yeah. <laughs> There's only outside of the book, right? There's no top level to it. The reader is the the reader and the writers are top level. We're outside them. I, I don't. We're looking. We're looking. I in. think the reader is dead, right? But he's yeah, in half life. Oh no, sorry, not I the reader's it, dead. The writer's dead. Dick is dead, but he's in half life because his book is still here, still able to speak when we consult it every few years when we go back to read it again. That's right, deep. and that that might be the ultimate point as well because maybe we're all dead and like as well like and i think uh from the little bit of the exegesis that i've managed to read it's like philip k dick totally started thinking that yeah. he starts talking about how and everything is actually like ubik is real and he starts looking for these little like weird things in life that are proving to him that he's dead and we're all dead and there's another snake that- oil salesman <laughs> who who sells that line um he says we're all living in a simulation or something like that. I'm trying to remember which one it is. Oh, um, is it that oh, Japanese guy? No. Although I, I want to tell that. you about my theory about Satoshi Nakamura. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> off topic. But I've been, <laughs> Go for um, it. I got a new machine. It has a brand uh, new computer and it has a brand new um, video card. And I don't know if you guys are following this, but video cards are very expensive right now. They have been for the last while. Because so many people are Bitcoin mining, um, yeah. or at least wow. coin mining, and uh, of course that's it's what our video guys, but simu- reality simulators, right? Um, and uh, so I don't know where I, I've gone off track here, but uh, Satoshi Nakamura was the guy who invented um, Bitcoin. He didn't do all of it by himself, but he's the guy who laid out in a six or seven page paper um, how it would work. And then mm-hmm. he recruited a bunch of people to actually put it together and implement it, and then and then it sort of took off. That was about ten years ago. Um, Satoshi Nakamura has never been contacted by any persons in real life. He's only a email address and has failed to respond to emails, so um oh. that he's gone dark right i had a theory this uh i think it was last week uh, that i was i was pretty pretty solid uh, solid about which is it's an ai a benevolent ai <laughs> that's trying <laughs> to fix our world and doing so at the fundamental basis level of economics or sort of what run um the the one level of the world that we live in basically getting nourishment and housing and gas and all this stuff right and the the basic problem with our economic system is that the banks are in charge not the some fundamental scarce good that is agreed upon by everybody right so mm-hmm. uh, it, i can get way too deep on economic theory uh but basically it was like a benevolent ai trying to uh find an indefeatable and unstoppable way of helping everybody that couldn't be defeated by the by the evil evil banks i i think that's a, an awesome theory it's probably completely wrong um <laughs> that satoshi nakamura like is not a an ai is less interesting to me than oh it's a it's a it's an ai yeah that's out there <laughs> helping us working on stuff <laughs> like like the Glimmung, right? Or um, yeah, right. I mean, it's not it's not all powerful. It's just an AI. It doesn't have physical feet. It can't connect computer cables together. It has to get help, and the way it does that is by 
proposing interesting solutions and helping people as they go. And people are fallible, and it doesn't know everything. It just it's doing its best. It's a demiurge of some kind. So hmm. it's an interesting. It's an interesting like it. theory. It wouldn't make a good book, I think. But it wouldn't. I, it would. Yeah, it would. I would like yeah. to read that book. I mean, uh, that's yeah, kind I of actually say. what Neuromancer is, right? That novel is kind of like that, except uh, yeah. except it's not so much benevolent as it's just trying to be free, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got this um, track there. It, it, yeah, yeah. It, it might be a spoiler. I believe the end of True Names by Werner Vinci, the story. Mm-hmm. Reveals that the character he's been dealing with all this time is actually actually uh, becomes an AI, yeah, of, of not very fast or very powerful one, but becomes an AI on, on the on the quote unquote internet to. Uh, I I you know now that I think about it, there's another connection I was thinking about. Neuromancer um, also has a half life, right? If you got you got you read that, Marissa. Paul, I assume you yeah, have. Yeah, long, a long long time ago. Okay. Yeah, it, yeah. it will make a good read along one day. Um, yeah, it has. Do that. It's, it's it's a good book. Um, I mate, I might have done it already. <laughs> in any case, in any case, um, it has a, a a hacker who is on a ROM chip, and they add RAM to him so that he can remember things. But he's consulted in exactly the same way as Ella is, right? They say we got this problem we need to work on. Uh, whoever the main character the drug using main character case uh i guess um he says i'm gonna need this this and this and he he picks up uh that particular character who is a now he's dead but he's a rom and he got you know he got paid some money to be to have his brain scanned and then people could rent him out you know Mm -hmm. um and when once when when you consult him as a rom Right, read-only memory. He um, he doesn't remember previous conversations. So, to keep him in the loop and not have to explain to him the whole thing again, you add some RAM to him, and then he can remember your previous conversations. But he doesn't exist in between, or do, has a some sort of half-life in between mm-hmm. uh, when you consult him. And that character, I, I don't remember the name of the the hacker who's a rom chip but ultimately his wish is thanks for you know thanks for helping me pull this heist case says to him uh do you want anything anything i can do for you and he says yeah turn me off at the end of uh, at the end of that character's character arc he wants to be turned off never mm-hmm. you know he'd, he'd like all copies of himself destroyed as well but just you know don't turn me on anymore because it's not cool <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That a uh, completely different kind of writer uh, is still yeah. dealing with the same kind of stuff. Because uh-huh. uh, I don't think I don't think um, Gibson is very similar in almost any respect to Dick, other than they're uh-huh. both really interesting writers. But they're, they they have the same. It's uh, Dixie Flatline. Dixie Flatline. Yeah. Well, he's yeah, he's a flatline because he's dead because <laughs> he kept dying when he yeah. was. Uh, that's actually that happens the case too right you die when you're in the uh, using your i don't know your computer and you hack too hard or something (laughs) hacking was a bit different back then (laughs) interesting dixie flatline that's right yeah so yeah you did do an episode on uh neuromancer 
episode 136 Isn't that funny? of the SSF Audio oh, Podcast yeah. long long before I joined your crew. I so. think Jenny's probably on that one then because that's one of her favorites. Yeah, uh, Jesse, Tamahome, Eric, and Jenny. Eric, okay, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, Dixie old school. Line. Oh, I see that Dixie Flatline is is the is not is the nickname McCoy Pauly, who earned his nickname surviving three flatlines uh, okay. while trying to crack an AI. Ha ha ha! This <laughs> what's the lesson? Um, don't try and crack. Uh, um, the lesson for Runciter: don't try and help Joe Chip because it'll only kill you, and you'll end up in half life <laughs> yourself. Interesting, huh? <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. So what, what? What? So I. Does it even matter what the status is at the end of who and what? It's it, it's it's I'm, the old trick that Philip K. Dick always pulls, right? You know, he. I mean, it's the best. It's the best trick there is. Um, I don't know anybody who's better uh, at doing it consistently. He's he's always pulling the same exact move, but it always works. Where he, <laughs> you know, it's coming, and yet you. Yeah, and it does. It still doesn't feel fake. I mean, I, I don't. I think other writers do it too, but, um, some some don't need to do it. Um, but he seems to be compelled to do it, and it always seems to work. All you know. So I'm getting to this. This is getting close to book length. Okay, go back and read the first chapter. See what I can do to twist it there. Just re, re, re- right. twist it around, and uh, maybe it's not the first chapter that he's re, re- rebooting, but um. It, the swerve. Yeah, the, yeah, but it's all it's a, it's it's curling back on itself, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this is him at the peak of doing that. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's very well yeah. done. I, I was surprised looking at the list of books that people. Um, I think I typed into what was it into Google? I typed in something like um, most popular Philip K. Dick books, right? most popular and the ones that i really like are there but uh, i noticed that a lot of the ones that i think are terrific are not uh super well regarded or at least thought of most popular philip k dick let's add books and see if i can bring that up again okay yeah so this is in order oh no that can't be books that's that's not in order i saw one where it said it was in order of popularity um, yeah, let's see. That's the best. But I, I was thinking some artificial gener- generated list rather than um, or algorithmic. So here's a list from somebody. Man of High Castle, Valis Ubik. Um, and then do Android Stream of Electric Sheep. But then another person says Martian Time Slip. And I'm like, yeah, that's way up there. Yeah. Um, but it's weird with Philip K. Dick books because I feel like your experience um, is so affected by what you've read of his before or which one you come in at. Yeah, yeah. What's the what the, the last Philip K. Dick book you read has that will affect what you think of this one? I mean, we've done a lot. We've mentioned Counterclock World a lot because we recently did that, so it's like it's fresh to mind. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's right. But Eye in the Sky, I keep going back to thinking about that, and even. Yeah. Um solar solar lottery, which I didn't maybe think of as, as big a deal at the time. I heard a, I heard that uh the, that's one hundred pages at a time podcast. You guys heard that one? That's the one where he's reading a whole bunch of sh- Philip K. Dick short stories and novels and 
talking about them. No. What's that one uh, called? called? I think it's called 100 Pages at a Time, but he, he does sort of classic American books, but he also is specifically going on Philip K. Dick stuff. and I think Ooh, he's a prof somewhere, good. so it's it's a bit academic-y. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only one person's perspective, but he points out some things that I think are pretty cool. Um, and something we don't really talk a lot about, and I'll, so I'll just mention that, is um, how Philip K. Dick is always thinking about the frontier. And I think we've noted it, you know, how he's always having people leave Earth to go to Mars or talking about leaving Earth to go to Mars or move, right, to go somewhere, to leave this frozen state. Um, And, of course, that's how Do Androids Dream is all, you know, that whole world is, it's... uh, A new life in the colonies. Exactly. And it's not really dealt with uh, as much in the movie as it is with the... I mean, it's there in the movie, but it's not... uh, when they escape, they don't. At the end of the first, you know, the first version of that movie, they don't escape to Mars together. They escape to, you know, I don't know, Northern California or Colorado or something, right? <laughs> um, and uh, just thinking about how that works um, is pretty interesting. I also noticed an echo um, in here of um, something we've seen in that horror world in the Bevatron. Remember? Um, mm-hmm. That was that's it's almost also in the father thing. I think there was a father thing moment in here, with the sort of the what's in the reeds, what's in the bamboo there, situation. I, I'm hesitant to say that it was 100% in there, but I, th- I thought I felt that in there somewhere. Yeah, that sounds familiar to me too. But uh, just looking over the list of PKD books that we've done. Um, some of them like don't stand out as much. Like I, the simulacra, I I read it. The penultimate truth, yeah, I read that. It doesn't stand. Ah, I love those two. I, li- I like them too. I I'm just like they don't stand out as prominent. Like I can't remember the yeah. the details of them. Where solar lottery, I'm a little better. Eye in the sky, the man who japed, I'm totally up to speed on that one. Galactic pot healer, I've read many times, so I know that one. Counterclock world was prominent um but there was the one that was the surprise i'm trying to find it on the list here um is not it's way down on the list is um the title's eluding me too it's the one with uh the fake napoleon no not napoleon the fake uh italian dictator Oh Where goodness. the aliens are invaded the Earth, and the human leadership is a uh, uh, yeah. You know the one I mean. Yeah, I can't think of the name. Uh, let's see if I can go through this list anymore. Nope. Okay, it didn't show up. It's got a uh, yellow cover. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Now wait for last year. There it is. Okay. Oh, now wait for last yes. year. So now oh wait for God. last year. To me, is the big oh. surprise. Right, I've heard of Ubik. I've read Ubik. It felt like I read Ubik before. I don't think I have. Um, I know people like Valis. I've not read that one. Maybe it's going to be the greatest book of his collection. I have a feeling it's not. Uh, I like. Would say so. I like the Scanner Darkly. It's pretty darn good. It's well done. It's it's clever. It's got some hilarious stuff in it. But it's not my big. You know, it's not my top five. 
I don't think. Maybe it's maybe it's close to the top five, but it's not in the top five. Whereas now, Wait for Last Year was one of those big surprises. Um, just some book with another title that sort of flows in, you know, Time Out of Joint and <laughs> uh, Counterclock World. They all sort of, the titles all flow together, even though they're quite distinctive. Yeah. Um, they, they seem to flow all together. Did you guys see what? the uh, alternate titles for... For Ubik? No. Oh. No. It, this is interesting. It was sent to the agent in 1966, and it was under the title Death of an Anti-Watcher. Wow. Which is oh. pretty different than Ubik, right? Yeah. Um, and if you think about it, that puts the whole book in a completely different light, doesn't it? Because death of the anti-watcher, an anti-watcher, death of an anti-watcher. So, who is the watcher? Who is the anti-watcher? So, I would say the anti-watcher is the person who can prevent other people from spying on you psychically, right? That's the the yep. plot, the boring plot at the that beginning. That's plot. Um, but since that isn't so prominent in the actual text of the the plot of the story who is the anti watcher then is it is that a new spin on the the last chapter and then that allows us to interpret like uh Runciter is actually the main character <laughs> um rather than Joe Chip mm. because who's dead so uh, the theory is, right, the one theory of the book is that that everybody died in the explosion except for Runciter, right? Mm-hmm. And then they're all put into cold pack and their their minds are blending together like uh, Ella's are, is with with uh, Jordy or Jory? Jory. Jory, um, yeah. And, and then that sort of covers up of probably 70% of the plot, right? And then the final chapter with the revelation that it's just the beginning. It's like the half the half life of an anti-watcher would make it clear. <laughs> I maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> it, it it does put the whole thing in a different spin though, I think. Mm. And it also doesn't... It, I can see why they changed it. It has death and anti in the title. And what's a watcher? No wonder they didn't keep that title. Ubik's not a, a better title, uh, but I can see why yeah. they changed it. Yeah, and to throw one more thing in there mm-hmm. is um, in the ex-Jesus, Philip K. Dick, whenever he refers to the story, mm-hmm. um, he talks about Runciter as... or He talks about it as a story about a dead guy, Runciter. yeah. I no, I think so I think it, it, Runciter is the main character, even though yeah, he, I mean he he doesn't seem like the viewpoint character for most of the book. Yeah. But I think he is the main character in in a in a larger sense, especially with that ending. Uh, but the fact yeah. that we spend so much time and that with him, slip. yeah. But the when we spend that time with him and his wife, um, that's sort of the central thing. Whereas the the girlfriend the pixie like uh, girlfriend who's always taking her clothes off and changing the Pat. past Pat right she's she's uh, she's a different relationship to cat <laughs> um, or maybe earlier yeah. in the relationship and her, her story is strange like I still don't totally 
understand what her deal is. Maybe maybe she is Ella, and just as he Ella's an older woman, and uh, who knows? Hmm. <laughs> and Ransitor and Chip are the same guy. It's just because uh, there's no answer here, is there? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're just gonna. Is that somebody around. else? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's who's the Ubik girl? Is that Pat? Is that someone else? At the end, you know, the second to last chapter. Who's that Ubik girl? Ultimately, I think her ne- Marissa and Jesse are figments of Paul's imagination. <laughs> oh God, help us all! That's true. <laughs> Paul is staring at us in our cold packs, <laughs> upright for eternity. And of course, that means that uh, the podcast listener is outside of it. Looking in at Paul, yeah, frozen in. <laughs> it's really not clear, is it? No, it's not clear. Explain so much, though. It's a good book, though. I liked it. Yeah, it, it, it's. It, I, I, I think I'm going to pump it up a little higher now that we've talked about it. Yeah, I mean, I already had it higher than you, Jesse. Not maybe not high as Marissa, but yeah, I think this is, this is Philip K. Dick doing Philip K. Dick, recycling asking questions, not giving answers, and entertaining us all along the way. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Of all the novels you have written, I guess, I don't know, my own particular favorites, a Man in the High Castle, of course. Ubik. 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 The French call it Ubik. Deep Ubik. And, uh, I don't know, it's, it's called Ubik Mio Signora in Italian. And I guess that means Ubik, my dear sir, or something like that. Well, it does, because I looked it up. Okay. <laughs> Shit, are you? What about your own? What about your own working habits? How do you, how do you work, or, or or do you or do you have a pattern? Indeed, is it just? Well, I used to just write all the time. I used to just get up at noon and sit down at the typewriter and write until two a.m. Just write from noon to morning until two a.m. You got to do that when you start out, or you're going to die on the vine. I mean, you got to just you know you always you know you're going to live on two thousand dollars a year and you're going to eat eat rocks and dirt and weeds from the backyard for the first ten years. And then after the first 10, 10 years, you get to eat instant breakfast. You work up to, you're rich enough to get a phone put in. And you get to buy an old automobile. Does that not cook or truck? It does, doesn't it? I'm afraid that. You get to drive around in an old hupmobile, which you crank start every morning. And then after 25 years, you, you, you manage to get a used Dodge. It costs you $795. The radio doesn't work in it. You know, and there's people that are standing behind grocery counters are making more money. I was, one time I was in Trader Joe's at the grocery store. And I was talking to the clerk, and he made more money than I did. And I, and I was really, I was really sore. I really took it bad. I really, I really took it bad. Because yeah, he just hired him. He didn't even have seniority as a grocery clerk. I mean, it, it, at least he could have been, a, you know, a senior clerk. I said, "How much do you make?" And he says, "Such and such." And I says, "Jeepers, that's a lot of money." You do that enough, you get to the you get to the point. You know, what the hell? Why am I beating my brains out for two grand a year, or four grand, or even ten? Well, then the, the I, I answer: I love to write, and I write it if they didn't pay me anything. Like when I wrote Ubik, I got about 
12 pages done. I didn't have anything I could think of. So I just wrote whatever came into my mind. And I wrote it from my unconscious is what I did. I turned it over to my right hemisphere of my brain, which did all the thinking from then on. And I was as surprised as anybody as to what came out. And in France, it's considered a great novel because it doesn't really make any sense. And they, it's an absurdist thing, the pataphysique in France, you know, and, and so on. Everything, Jari hit town in Paris. They love stuff that didn't make any sense. Maybe it makes sense when you translate it into French. Maybe that's like Poe, when, you know, was it Baudelaire who translated Poe, you know, and, and made him a great writer in France? Maybe, maybe I'm a great writer in France because I've got good translators. You, you are better known, I think, sometimes in France <laughs> than you are here. In Ger Germany, France, um, in England, too. They're not translated, though. See, I mean, we speak yeah. the same yeah. industry. Two nations separated by They spell curb with a K there. Yeah. That's the only difference. What do they think of Man in the High Castle in Germany? Oh, that's, that's heavy. Heavy. I really do not know, Mike. I really don't know. I'm, I have a, a great anxiety about for the future of science fiction. And when I wrote to Publishers Weekly, um, was very I took a very negative view of the future of science fiction. I I contrasted the hopes and dreams that we had had for it with with now people writing about sword fights and little fellows with fuzzy turned up feet. What is it, Drano and Frito and other Dildo. Yeah. That you can't you can't satirize you can't parody science fiction anymore because it's becoming a parody of itself. You know, people think science fiction consists of guys putting on funny-looking old-fashioned costumes and whacking each other over the head with swords, you know, and that's not science fiction. Science fiction is stuff like 1984 to me, and dystopias, you know. Um, like Man in the High Castle, dystopias. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the novel of idea is still the cardinal thing in science fiction. All we got now is, is tedious sermonettes masquerading as literature, uh, adventure, you know, space opera. I, I, I had a strange experience. I played over um, a X minus one cassette that somebody sent me for one of my X minus one shows that NBC did in 1954. 1954. And it was indistinguishable from the latest science fiction like a Space 1999, is that what it's called, and Star Trek. I mean, mine was as modern in 1954 as what they're doing now. There's Which been, one was yours? Well, the one I, I played over was uh, Colony. Remember, we listened to that thing, and we marveled that in 1954, I didn't do that, I, I don't take credit for the, 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 the uh, radio treatment of it. I mean, somebody else did it. But what he was doing in 54, treating my story, was as modern as what they're doing now. You know, well, you wouldn't know it was done in 54. There was nothing to give it away. As if we're going to find out, because if we have that tape of X-1 called Colony, we're going to run it tonight. Well, I'll give you my cassette. We, we may have it. We, there's a fellow named Bob Morgan who's given uh, Hour 25, like, oh, God, I must have 50 radio shows, Dimension X, X-1, minus et cetera. Mm -hmm. If that one is in there, I think it is, we'll run it. Yeah, I have, I, I, there were two of mine, Colony and The Defenders. And um, it was just scary to listen to it and look on the date, you know, 54 and realize, and here we are in 1976, and we've made no steps forward. You know, we're still, it still is follows, you know. Captain, there's something hideous on the view screen. <laughs> Captain says, turn on the laser beams. And then a voice comes out of nowhere, all looking under the seat cushions to see where the voice comes from. <laughs> and it's talking to an echo chamber and says, I can read your thoughts. 
I need your assistance. And they say it's a, it's a ruse. Get 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 the uh, get the eagles going. <laughs> eagles take off. We know this is a ruse. This is the captain talking from the control room. We know it's all a ruse. You don't need our help. You're going to zap us as soon as we we take off to zap you first. And it's you know nothing is progressed. I am a superior being. I am a kindly old fellow. You can believe everything I'm telling you because I'm really a computer and I would a computer lie. And I thought, oh my God, I just saw that on the air Saturday night. And I said, that's Hal talking again. That's old Hal, you know, shining everybody on. My name is Hal. Would I lie? Would a computer lie? Herb Jaffe. He has an option on the Android Dream Electric Sheep, but I don't dare bum bad mouth his silly movies. <laughs> I think I'll leave it. What is what is that cutting the throat thing you guys keep doing? <laughs> if you're listening, Herb Jaffe, I love your money. <laughs> but you sure write lousy scripts, I'll tell you, man. You you're back at you're a Neanderthal man is what you are. You're back in the Stone Age. You're back with George Powell. You I don't want you to make a movie out of my book. I read the screenplay that they wrote for Do Android Dream of Electric Sheep. And it was a combination of Steve Reeves and Maxwell Smart. Why are they making all this cutting the throat motion? What is that? <laughs> and I said, the, 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 the producer, Robert Jaffe, Herb Jaffe's son, flew down to Fullerton to, to talk with me about it. Because I didn't think it was a final you know, uh, shooting script. I thought it was a rough draft. You know. And I, he, I, I said, I'm, I'm going to beat you up right here in the airport. I said, I said you're going to drag me down with you guys and ruin my career if you make a movie out of, out of my book. He says, you mean it's that bad? And I says, yeah. And when I finally says, you mean you wrote that book seriously? He says, you science fiction writers take your writing seriously? I says, I'm serious enough to throw you right out of my car. I said, that's how serious we take it. I said, I'm going to buy that back from you. I'm going to give you the $2,000 option money back. I says, and he says, you're serious, aren't you? And we had about a four-hour uh, rap session, which was very productive. They didn't make the movie. They just held, held, continued to hold the option. And I'm hoping they don't make the movie unless they, you know, write a decent script. It was really terrible. I mean, it was the worst script. It was, it was, how bad was it? I'll tell you how bad it was. <laughs> you could have stopped the first person on the street and asked him to write a script, and he could have done a better job, really. And a guy I know who's into screenplay says it would also cost about $6 million to make it, which is another thing. You wrote a screenplay of one of your own things. Yeah, I wrote a good screenplay. I wrote a really good one of you, Big. And... Um, it seems to be the fate that the better the screen, but boy, there, there's, there's Gresham's law. I don't know how it applies to science fiction writing in general, but it sure applies to screenplays, you know, that the bad screenplays force the good out. I mean, that, that, that if given a choice, they will make a movie out of a bad screenplay, and they'll throw the good screenplay back at the author. If I remember the Rolling Stone piece, that screenplay you did of Ubik is currently bouncing bouncing around Europe trying to get financed. Is that still the case or is that a Yeah, it's still option. They're still trying to get financing for it. It's not the director's fault. He spent all the money he had, Jean-Pierre Jean Gorin, um, and he, he couldn't get financial backing. He couldn't get the millions of dollars that he thought it would cost. And he got really sick. He got, he got sick with liver trouble and he, he had to give up being a director and go teach down in San Diego. And he, really, he just about died trying to get a movie made out of that. I, I wrote a really great script. I must say, I wish you, you know, I'd like to read it over the air sometime. There's the funniest scenes in that screenplay that aren't in the book that I added. That I went back to the old silent film days, you know, where there's these, I, you know, it's a tragedy. 
That's the one thing I am bitter about. If I had written a novel with that stuff in it, you know what I mean? I wouldn't have any trouble selling it, but I can't sell that screenplay. Man, it's too bad. We are close to running out of time. Let me ask you if there's anything in particular that we have not covered that you do want to get on, that you do want to talk about. Well, let me just make one statement, and that is that I hope people will come into the science fiction field and write science fiction and not, not listen to people like Silverberg and Malzberg and Harlan Ellison and anybody else you want to name, Vonnegut, who say either they don't write science fiction or they never did write science fiction or they will not write it in the future. I mean, science fiction is a lot of fun to write. And it's, 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 it's worth all the, the bad financial breaks to do it. I mean, I, I don't regret for, well, that's not true. I regret it when I turn off my electricity. I go through periods, you know, where when I sent off the manuscript of Flow My Tears, for instance, to, to, to my agent, I didn't have enough money to send it first class. I had to send it by parcel post, I mean, third, third class mail. I didn't have money for first class post. That's how poor I was. And um, that's, that's desperation city when you get to the point where you can't pay the postage to mail a manuscript off after it's already been bought. Double had already bought and on the basis of the outline. So, I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the, artist, it's the artist in the garret again. You know, he's going to starve his ass off if he writes science fiction. Nobody will give him any, they'll flip him off every time. He will never get any recognition. He will never get any money. But he will have a hell of a lot of fun. And he ought to know what he's in it for. If he wants to go in for the money, let him go else. But if he, if he loves to write science fiction, let him be prepared for what's going to happen to him. He's going to get no money and he's going to get no recognition. And he's going to die in the gutter. But he might die happier and more at peace with himself than somebody who's going to make 15 foul doing something he may not want to do. I mean, do what you want to do. I mean, people are stupid if they think they're in for money. Why did they get in in the first place? Who, whoever promised them a lot of money? Where was Ellison promised a lot of money? You know, where was Maltzberg promised a lot of money? Where did it say when Maltzberg was born that he was promised fame and money? You know, that it's like his birthright, you know, his patrimony. Nonsense. We're lucky that they publish us at all, in a way. You know, they could, they could actually abolish the field of science fiction. And then we really would have to write something else. You know, we're lucky that category still exists. I mean, let's hear it for the science fiction writers who are coming along and still writing science fiction and, and, and flip the bird to the people who want money. The words of Philip K. Dick. This is Mike Hodell for Hour 25.